Hi, I'm Danny Russell, Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Welcome to the latest episode of Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest policy headlines and provide an insider's view on Asia and global affairs. So today I'm honored to welcome Ambassador Jai Shankar, one of uh, India's premier diplomats, now a former diplomat, but someone whose knowledge and insight with all things pertaining to India's foreign policy, but also to Asia writ large, is really unparalleled. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Good to be in New York. Good to be in Asia Society and in SP. Let me, if I could, just dive in and ask you about uh, U.S.-India relations and, mm-hmm. and where you think things stand today. I know that typically the defense and the strategic cooperation uh, have been key components of our partnership. But I also know that on the economic side, uh, there have been a number of roadblocks and setbacks and most uh, dramatically the decision by the U.S. government on uh, GSP, the Generalized System of Preferences, seems like uh, it is problematic since it removes the favorable tariff treatment that India has enjoyed. Perhaps you could cover that in a sort of broader sense of where you think the relationship stands. On the whole, I would say uh, India-U.S. relations is very much... uh, a successful story for both both sides. In fact, if one looks back at the last 20 years, among the major relationships in the world, I can't imagine any other relationship that has changed for the better as much as uh, India-US uh, have done. And bear in mind what we today take as a given, uh, for example, defense cooperation, uh, fact, we do exercises. These were not givens two decades ago. I mean, uh, till 2005, maybe even a little bit later, India, for example, uh, was not uh, buying any military equipment from the United States at all and had not bought it for 40 years. Uh, uh, so if you, if you actually look at it, I think, in a sense, the nuclear deal kind of removed a big obstacle uh, uh, sort of... Uh, impediment to the growth of the relationship. But thereafter, I think both countries have responded uh, to geopolitical changes. They've responded to to the the consequences of the the internet world, uh, to tech developments. Uh, So uh, in in many ways, you know, Indo-US relations has been positively affected by globalization. Uh, So, uh, now, in regard to trade, in one sense you could say the only way you don't have trade problems is you don't have trade. Uh, If you look at the United States, uh, the U.S. actually has the most trade problems with the countries with which it it has strong political relationships. I mean, with Japan, with Europe. Uh, Of course, China has a very different category. Going back to my time as ambassador, uh, the, we've had uh, differences on, on trade issues, on economic issues. Uh, this administration in the U.S. has made that much more central. I, I think that's where the differences come, uh, that they made that much more central to the relationship than their predecessors. Uh, 
But if you ask me again, uh, among the countries which have big trade deficits, uh, if you look at the uh, the two years of the Trump administration, little more than two years, actually India is one relationship where the trade deficit has gone down. Uh, so. Uh, to some extent, actually, people should should uh, be uh, saying good things about uh, the relationship. I'm reasonably confident we'll work through this. My understanding is that there are people on both sides who are talking. I wouldn't take any of what has happened as a sort of last word uh, on the subject. Uh, and uh, my sense is also that at the end of the day, relationships are integral. You know, you may have points of difference, you may have points of convergence, but uh, I would like to believe that people in Washington today see their relationship with India as a big plus in what is otherwise a fairly volatile and uncertain world. And if they really see that as a big plus, then I'm sure they'd give it the attention and the care that the relationship requires. Well, those are all very good points. I think uh, the relationship the United States has with India is uh, very prominently in the plus category. I also think that relationships matter, including uh, personal relationships. One takeaway from your comments for me is the, the value of having an ambassador in New Delhi. And in the case of our friend Ken Juster, we have an ambassador who himself knows a thing or two about uh, trade. Mm -hmm. So that's all certainly all to the good. You mentioned the defense and the security relationship. Um, and I, by the way, I, I just learned that the former defense minister, Manohar Parikhan, had passed away. Yes, and yes. I was very, very sorry sad. to hear that. Yes. Um, because he was, uh, I think, responsible for uh, the renewal of the defense framework agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, there have been other major landmarks in the last 10 years, as you mentioned, and I think you make a very important point in contrasting our ability to cooperate and collaborate on security issues. Overall, on the defense side, what do you see as the next big step forward? Uh, where would you like to see the U.S.-India security relationship go? You know, my sense is it is unfolding well. I would, again, make one important point which distinguishes our relationship. Uh, you hear from in Washington today a lot of disappointment about allies who have not paid their fair share for the relationship. You may agree with it or not, but it's certainly a sentiment which is pretty vocal. Um, at the same time, uh, there are some some... Uh, fairly sharp uh, terms today to describe more competitive relationships that the U.S. has with some other countries. Now, from uh, where India is concerned, uh, I think it should be certainly something to be noted that here's a relationship which is growing. It's growing because clearly there are strong convergences and common ground between India and the U.S., but it's also a relationship for which the other party is paying. You know, so we are paying our fair share of that growth in the relationship. So when we get equipment, for example, from the United States, we buy that equipment. It's, it's not something which, as in some other cases, uh, is given as uh, assistance. 
So uh, if you look at the direction in which the U.S. is moving, and this is not a comment on this particular administration, I think it's a larger view of where uh, the where American politics is going. Because uh, if you look on the on the Democratic side as well, there are, there is a lot of sentiment uh, about uh, U.S. not overextending abroad. Uh, that relationships should be fairer than they are currently. I think India is a very good fit for the future sort of uh, vision that the U.S. has of the world, of of partners with whom there is fairer sharing of responsibility, partners who pull their own weight, uh, who may not agree with you on everything, but there is sufficient uh, common ground to be regarded as reliable partners. Uh, so, uh, in in terms of where the relationship is going, I think in the last uh, year, certainly, we've, last few years, we've had some important milestones. Uh, we had uh, an agreement which was signed last year called Comcasa, which is a sort of an agreement which would help uh, secure data uh, transfers between the militaries of the two countries. Uh, we had some years ago uh, the LEMOA, which is a sort of, a, uh, I would say, a customized version of what you would call AXA uh, uh, on the American side. Uh, we had our first two plus two uh, meeting last last year. Uh, and if you look at the complexity of the exercises that's growing, if my memory serves me right, we have a tri-service exercise uh, for the first time slated sometime this year. Uh, so I, I think there are, you know, very solid achievements to point to. Uh, so one uses these as uh, indices. Now, the the of course, what happens is uh, what look very formidable once they happen become very normal. I mean, people actually take it almost as a given. Uh, so uh, in some ways, that's good that we we are treating what has been a very high growth relationship is a very normal relationship. But I think we should appreciate that uh, a lot of work has gone into it and a lot of work continues to be sort of needed for it to keep growing. Well, one of the people who's doing a lot of the work is Prime Minister Modi. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if uh, you'd share with us your sense of what, how you feel about what the Modi government has uh, accomplished in its term so far in uh, in the foreign policy field? Well, you know, as is often the case, there'd be a lot of common elements, there'd be many elements which are distinguishing. I think uh, if I were to, obviously your question in a sense is on the latter. Uh, I would say uh, the there's, there's a sort of a much stronger strategizing uh, uh, a different sense of uh, where fo- foreign policy fits into the larger scheme of things. And I'd, I'd give you a few examples to illustrate that point. You know, uh, uh, in India, as you know, probably aware, uh, what we call our economic reform agenda has broadened very much in the last few years. What was much narrower economic reform has acquired much sharper uh, sort of social connotations. So you have, uh, you know, uh, almost sort of uh, these campaigns which which promote digitization, which promote skills, which promote startups, which promote uh, urbanization. Uh, 
uh, and you would relate to it uh, partly because uh, East Asia went through similar experiences. In fact, I mean, in many ways, Japan is a kind of pioneer uh, of that kind of modernization. Now, what happened in East Asia is in some ways now happening in India, which is a link between the modernization at home and the foreign policy activity outside. So you, uh, so a lot of foreign policy today is actually uh, looking for best practices, for technology, for resources, for experiences, and then seeing where does this fit into an accelerated modernization uh, program. And, uh, you know, the ASEAN has done it, the East Asian Tigers have done it. Uh, so uh, one part of the foreign policy of the last few years has been that. The second has been actually uh, the last five years has seen much greater global uncertainty and volatility. So uh, we have in Asia the rise of China, which is which is a very, very profound event in terms of its implication. Uh, we have in the last few years a retrenchment of American power, a very different international posture by the United States. Uh, we have also a return of Russia, uh, which uh, today uh, is more actively influencing events in, in many areas, and many of them very close to us. Uh, we see uh, we see the travails of Europe. I mean, uh, which at one point of time was sort of uh, you know touted as a kind of a postmodern uh, uh, sort of polity, but today its its dissensions are very visible. And I think there's a big question, strategic question today about uh, the normalization of Japan and you know what role Japan would play in Asia. So if you have uh, uh, so much turbulence. I mean, pretty much every major power uh, is finding its position uh, under change, uh, not always in the positive direction. I think a lot of it is managing, positioning yourself to deal with this. You know, how do you build your, how, how do you actually take these five, six major uh, shapers of international politics and then manage your relationships so that you get the best out of this situation. I think it's today a much more complex challenge and uh, you can see uh, under uh, suddenly in this government uh, a great effort made uh, in that direction. Uh, other than that, uh, I, I think when I spoke about strategizing, I, there is a very sharp focus on the neighborhood. Uh, it's sort of uh, articulated in terms of a policy which we call neighborhood first, which gives priority to the neighborhood, which uh, looks at the neighborhood uh, in much more sort of, uh, uh, I would say, terms of reaching out, uh, building connectivities, strengthening commonalities, contacts. Uh, there is a more integrated view of how to handle the uh, maritime challenges. Uh, so again, we actually have an Indian word which literally means uh, the seas, sagar. Uh, so uh, the idea is really instead of looking at you know the the navy differently and uh, ocean island developments differently and your island neighbors separately look at it far more cohesively there's a much stronger uh, effort being made uh, to connect reconnect india with its extended neighborhood which means the gulf uh, on the one side and uh, uh, the Southeast Asia on the other. Uh, in fact, if you look, I would say two very noticeable s sort of uh, reflections of that change. 
uh, was that last year we had the entire ASEAN leadership at the Indian National Day. And uh, we've also uh, had much closer uh, contacts with the with the Gulf countries. Uh, and in fact, after uh, for the first time, our foreign minister was invited to address the OIC uh, recently in uh, UAE. Uh, so uh, what, what you can see is, you know, on the one hand, the economy is growing. We are today the fifth or sixth largest economy. But how does that get reflected in, in the sense of more influence, shaping the outcomes, uh, sort of building the relationships, both personal, institutional? Uh, uh, so, so you can, these, these, I would say, would be some elements of change. I mean, I would, there are some others like a much higher visibility of the diaspora, for example, uh, or a much greater willingness uh, to get involved in uh, humanitarian assistance uh, efforts outside. But, you know, I, I, I could go on at some length, but I, I would say, sort of point to some of these. That's very interesting. And I myself experienced a sense of change when I served as the Assistant Secretary of State, and I followed in the footsteps of my predecessor, who had begun uh, in tandem with our colleague who was the uh, assistant secretary for South Asia, mm -hmm. Nisha Biswal, mm -hmm. a joint dialogue with uh, right. joint secretaries, Indian counterparts in Delhi to discuss the neighborhood. And I noticed that once uh, the Modi uh, government took office that there was a real uptick, and a, a surge in uh, active interest in discussing uh, and coordinating, in some instances, approaches and policies to this very turbulent uh, region and in turbulent times. So I, it's clear that the personality of a leader and the strategic uh, outlook of a leader uh, can make a significant difference in addition to the structural forces that you just enumerated. And uh, by the way, I like putting the neighborhood first. Uh, George Schultz, when he was Secretary of State, used to describe it as tending the garden, yes, uh, yes. looking after your own neighborhood, uh, as opposed to putting America first. But in your own neighborhood, uh, you were India's ambassador to Beijing from, mm -hmm. uh, what, I guess, 2009, 2009 to, to, two th to 2013. So that coincided with the emergence of a certain Xi Jinping mm -hmm. uh, as v from vice president to general secretary of the party. And it also coincided with the beginning of a more assertive and a, and a more outward-oriented Chinese uh, foreign policy. What, what has that meant for India, do you say? I would say as a, as a professional even if I was a retired professional. Professional uh, emeritus. Uh, uh, the, I would still go more for structural explanations. Okay. So my, when I look at the changes in China, for me the inflection point, yes, certainly I accept 2012 was very important, but I think 29 should not be underestimated. In 29, because the global financial crisis had happened in 2008, uh, in the last quarter, the Chinese were also worried what would happen to them. But by the second quarter of 2009, they 
could see that they had come through it and the uh, both the US and and Europe were struggling so uh, to my mind uh, uh, the uh, a lot of the behavioral traits uh, and the outward movement actually go back i would say uh, to to 2009 some of them the ground had been prepared even before 2009 now uh, in the in the sense in the to answer your question so what does it mean for india look we have in china the makings of a potential superpower okay i still use the word potential because uh, 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 there's a there's a huge gap uh, between uh, uh, us and china today but also even what the soviet union could do at the height of its power and what the united kingdom could do uh, at the height of its i mean they they really had a global reach which uh, china still doesn't have but it's heading in that direction now when you have such a enormous transformation in the in the global order obviously the countries which are closer to it feel it more you know the us feels it in terms of its cumulative policy impact but physically i mean those countries who live next to china obviously feel the the first impact of this of this group so what happens is you you see whatever they are doing they are now doing it at a higher intensity with more resources but we also see today uh, you know uh, the chinese doing things which historically they never done uh, so one example of it is the chinese uh, presence today in the indian ocean where actually there's no history to it in any serious sense i mean there may be an odd foray here and there so uh, uh and and then you know we see it expressed in initiatives like the belt and road uh or in institutions uh which uh, uh support a uh, lot of their outward uh, activities sort of the impact of that is perhaps sharper also because uh, they are a different kind of polity they're organized on very different principles the way of working is very different from yours or ours so so if you put that all together which is the rise of i mean it's not just another power which is rising i mean this this has been uh, i would say after second world war really the biggest geopolitical change which is which we are seeing in the making and when you see that close up uh, and uh, the impact of that is directly on you because remember we are a neighbor uh uh we are a neighbor uh, yes we have a history of uh, good relations interspersed with not so good periods uh we are the only other country which is a billion strong uh so in many ways there are a lot of similarities between us so i mean i i would say uh people uh, certainly unlike in some other parts of the world i mean we feel culturally uh, very much at ease uh, dealing with china uh but uh the fact is uh a neighbor in some ways a competitive neighbor with whom you have border boundary disputes uh with whom there have been some difficult uh, periods now uh sort of growing so visibly in power so when the two countries the i mean to my mind this how to forge an equilibrium between india and china is certainly one of the big challenges 
uh, for both countries. Uh, because uh, it's not that India is static. India is also growing. You know, so, so you have a very uh, sort of uh, complex situation. Two big countries growing at definitely a differential pace, but definitely both growing fairly robustly. And then how do they find a sense of comfort between them? It's an issue worth reflecting on. To make the dynamic even more complicated in terms of your neighborhood and difficult neighbors, uh, there is also the, uh, the Pakistan factor and mm -hmm. the relationship between and among the three countries. I think uh, the foreign minister of Pakistan, Qureshi, is in Beijing right now. And I saw in the news that he had held meetings in which he, shall we say, complained uh, about uh, the situation in Kashmir. Uh, and I saw also Wang Xishan quoted as saying that uh, China backs Pakistan's efforts to, quote, handle challenges and to, uh, and to manage ties with its neighbors. More recently, in here in New York, in the UN Security Council, we had the striking uh, case in which uh, the Chinese blocked uh, the resolution on listing uh, Masood Azhar of JEM. So help help me understand a little bit how the China India Pakistan uh, dynamic operates. I think the China-Pakistan relationship is a uh, is one with a fairly substantial history. Uh, certainly, I mean, goes back in a in a uh, sort of uh, formal sense to 1963, I guess, uh, when they did their agreement. Uh, one one of their agreements, the one where Pakistan illegally ceded uh, territory to China. Uh, but uh, even before 1963, and the 63 happened one year after our boundary conflict with China in 62. Uh, but even before that, you know, I think there's now a lot of documentation uh, which shows that the Chinese were far more understanding of Pakistan's relationship with the U.S. Uh, at that time because, uh, I mean, you've dealt with China. The Chinese have... Uh, fairly strong sense of geopolitics. I mean, for them, a neighbor's neighbor logic, you know, uh, these these basic principles of statecraft are are sort of applied by them fairly rigorously. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strong relationship. But now here's the challenge. The challenge is this. Look, China is going up in the world, okay? China would like to be well regarded by the world because if your aspiration is you know, if you are the number two economy in the world, one day you'd like to go higher than number two. You'd like to be well thought of by the international community. Now, if uh, as a result of this relationship, here uh, they, are, they are linked to a country which today has honestly become synonymous with terrorism, uh, where uh, there is a enormous global distrust. I mean, today, in the old days, these used to be India's complaints. Now, it's you know now Pakistani fingerprints are on so many things that it's it's that feeling is pretty widespread. So I think the issue th which the Chinese will have to deal with is, uh, you know, their reputationally would they would they want to be associated 
is that the kind of image you really want uh, so so how do you how do you challenge that uh, you know and and that that becomes an issue because uh, on the one hand yes there is the weight of history and you know you've had a relationship built over many years but now this is not that china this is a different china so how does this china deal with being associated uh, with with uh, you know a country from where uh, these kinds of actions happen that makes sense i will confess that in my career i was constantly besieged by chinese diplomats insisting that the united states should list as a terrorist organization uh uyghur groups for which there was no simply no supporting and corroborating evidence so it did strike me as uh as highly problematic uh to see the chinese opting to weigh in in the security council in effect to uh defend the leader of uh, the JEM there's a further challenge if not irony in the harsh treatment of China's own muslim minority population and the sort of area for friction i would think uh between china and pakistan is uh not uh insignificant i'm conscious of the time but i let me ask you a little bit about the india pakistan relationship since you were still the foreign secretary in september of 2016 during mm-hmm. that uh terrorist attack on the indian army um there've been other of course as you've mentioned even without going back uh so far in history uh some pretty dreadful incidents including the pulwana attack and so on um in each case if i understand correctly the indian response has been uh deliberate uh and measured but perhaps you could give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain how how were the decisions made what what were the policy considerations that your government considered in 2016 when you had to decide on the character and the uh, and the intensity of a response well you know this is a this is a sort of a sensitive subject right now because it sort of uh, becomes a debate of uh, comparative narratives mm-hmm. so i i i sort of let me let me limit my answer uh to the larger issue and and the larger issue is this look the fact that you have groups like let or jm operating in pakistan is not a secret okay it's not a secret because they're they, you know they're not operating from some caves somewhere in the boondocks i mean they're operating out of big pakistani cities they have uh, offices out there uh their leaders travel around they share platforms with uh, pakistani politicians uh so so it's it cannot be anybody's case that the state doesn't know what's going on in that country i mean this is happening in broad daylight uh and in the case of jesh bear in mind that the leader was a person who was actually uh, sort of uh, brought out of an indian jail as a as a, as a uh, t- uh as part of a, a settlement of a hijacking so now the 
uh, now in this day and age you know a country cannot wash its hands of what's happening within that country i mean even if you take the most charitable explanation for what the pakistani state no does and does not do what it supports and what it does not support if you give them all the benefit of doubt you still have this issue that there is open activity from pakistan and uh, uh, you actually had uh, a president of pakistan give uh, an assurance public assurance at his level that pakistani soil would not be used for acts of terrorism uh, against india and uh, clearly that's something that they are not living up to now what do, what do you do as india in this situation uh, see people have played this narrative that the if we do something somewhere there are dangers and you know there are tensions and oh my god this can go out of control but you know, it's it's a bit i mean it's more than a bit unfair that the perpetrator of the act is not being cautioned it's actually when a victim responds that everybody says oh be careful because if you respond uh, there could be dangers in your response so i think somewhere we need to 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 sort of not allow this game gaming of india to to go on which is that on one side there is a feeling that you know india can be attacked with impunity that you know soldiers can be killed in this case policemen can be killed and the indian state should be told don't do anything because there are dangers out there i think we should exercise our right of self defense we should respond uh, i think today public mood is very strongly for it but it's not just a question of public mood i mean frankly to my mind it makes strategic sense that you you should not allow uh, you know the other player uh, to define the framework in a way in which they can carry out their acts and completely indefensible acts uh, with impunity while while uh, Uh, disputing your right to defend yourself understood well ambassador jay shankar you've been generous with your time thank you so much in your career i think on the order of 40 years you served india brilliantly uh in japan in uh china in the united states and uh, other countries and uh, of course as foreign secretary so We thank you for your service and thank you for joining us at the Asia Society today. So that's our episode. This has been Danny Russell for Asia Inside Out. Thank you for listening.